0: This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. The year 2012 saw plenty of headline-making moments in classical music. It started off with a bang, or rather with a ring, the infamous cell phone marimba ringtone that interrupted the New York Philharmonic. There was also an opera singer with controversial tattoos, a composer accused of plagiarism, and cellos on planes, or rather cellos booted off of planes. This was a tough year for orchestras, but a good year for entrepreneurship. Joining me to talk about the past year are Anne Majette, classical music critic of the Washington Post, Steve Smith, a classical music critic for the New York Times and music editor at Time Out New York, and Heidi Wailson, a classical music critic for the Wall Street Journal. Okay, so we're going to try and take this by categories, starting with your biggest musical surprise in a positive way. Heidi, let's start with you.
1: Well, I guess my biggest musical surprise was uh, David Lang's piece, Love Fail, which I had absolutely no idea what to expect from this. And it was featuring Anonymous Four, which is a wonderful quartet of women who used to sing only medieval music. And this piece was written for them. And it was a beautifully haunting Medieval, modern, strange, modern take on the Tristan and Isolde story, which was um, sort of semi staged at BAM and it traveled around a little bit. And uh, it was actually a really stunningly beautiful piece. And it was so great to see Anonymous 4 return from being
0: gone for a long time. And David Lang is now going to be the next Carnegie Hall composer's chair well-deserved, in your opinion? Yes, he is.
1: It's going to be really interesting. He's already, I believe, got some interesting plans setting up at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. If I could jump in about David Lang, it's mm-hmm. very amusing that since David Lang won the
2: Pulitzer for the Little Match Girl Passion, he's suddenly become a great lion of the field. You could argue for him as being one of the most important artists of the year with all of the honors and awards heaped upon him. And it's a case for the Pulitzer Prize really has helped transform a career that was already pretty active but always a little bit marginalized in the eyes of the establishment. Just
0: and he is Musical America's yeah. Composer of the Year this year. And
2: Little Absolutely. Match Girls,
1: Little Match was going to be done at the Glimmerglass Opera uh, this coming summer. Yes. Um, and it won a Grammy as well
0: as the Pulitzer. Right. <laughs> so he's had a good year. Steve, you have anything you want to contribute to the Talk about David Lang.
3: Oh, I'm just beside myself with misery having missed Love Fail and hoping that I get another opportunity. I love Little Match Girl, and I I love several of the pieces that he has composed since then, and I absolutely agree that the Pulitzer has had a transformative effect on his career while evidently having absolutely no effect on his character. He is still the sort of humble, affable, approachable, and very lovely person that he always was. So it's always nice to see that success... um, Uh, succeeds well.
2: (laughs) I would throw in that it's a caveat for me as a critic. I reviewed the premiere, at least the New York premiere, of A Little Match Girl Passion, and I kind of missed it. The impact that that piece has had for me on subsequent hearings did not get me at that first performance, and I gave it a very lukewarm review. So it's a, a reminder to me how critics have to be careful when judging something new.
0: And your favorite moment of the year was something not so new?
2: My favorite moment of the year, well, it was certainly new in its presentation. I'm, I'm based in Washington now, and my fa- one of my favorite moments was a very local moment. The University of Maryland Student Orchestra came out on stage dressed in street clothes and with their instruments and began moving around the stage as they played Debussy's Afternoon of a Faun. And it sounds like that would be impossible to pull off musically or that it would be gimmicky. And in fact, it was a luminous and kind of revelatory performance. The kids had memorized the score so that they could play without music as they moved very naturally and not awkwardly around the stage. This was all done in tandem with Liz Lerman, the MacArthur-winning choreographer in Washington. And unfortunately, this is on YouTube, so I have no qualms mentioning it to a non-Washington audience because you can go and see for yourselves. And it was such a wonderful example of the kinds of things that could be done with orchestras if we think a little bit outside the box. and a really stunning performance. I think everybody in the room was kind of in awe when it was over. It was really exciting to
0: be part of that. All that was missing was for John Doyle to be involved and have them sing, too.
3: (laughs) No. (laughs)
0: All right, just the way it was. Okay, and Steve?
3: It does strike me that this seems to be kind of an interesting application of something that—and Anne, if you don't think this is where it came from, say so—but it seems to me an interesting application of something that the new music group 8th Blackbird has incorporated really well into its performances and that maybe their influence is starting to trickle outward and upward into uh, unsuspected areas.
2: Well, it's interesting. I saw 8th Blackbird's Pierrot Lunaire, which certainly was the same thing. It was a stage incorporating a lot of motion and theatrical elements, Piero Lunaire being, of course, theatrical to begin with. But I think I would say it's actually all part of a larger ethos of musicians looking at ways of reimagining what they do.
0: So, Steve, you chose something highly theatrical for your
3: biggest surprise. I, I absolutely did. And uh, the reason that I categorized David T. Little's opera mm-hmm. Dog Days as being a big surprise is because, frankly, and I say this as an admirer of David's music, I didn't know that he had this in him. David is somebody who I've known for writing small band works. He has an ensemble called New Speak, and he's the uh, the drummer. He plays rock drums in this group, and he's got kind of a punk rock background, and um So I knew him for writing very, very effective small pieces, usually with some kind of political angle to them. Here was a case where, having done at least one smaller operatic piece before Soldier Songs, which is coming back to New York in January, he was out at Montclair State University for their Peak Performances series with a full evening-length opera based on a a completely apocalyptic short story by Judy Budnitz that was very, very deftly... uh, set in, in a libretto by Royce Vavrick And it was a case where the two of them, plus the director, Robert Woodruff, were obviously all kind of in sync to create something that was much, much more elaborate and, and much, much more impactful than any one angle or any one of its parts, Um you know, it, it sustained interest throughout the entire evening. There were terrifying things about it and really joyous things about it. And in the end I felt like here's a team that has actually moved Opera forward. And you know, the the surprise wasn't that David was capable, but just that I'd never sort of seen that side of him before.
1: I'm with you on that one, Steve. I mean, I was so excited to see Dog Days, and I didn't know David T. Little at all, so I had absolutely no idea what to expect. But one of the reasons that I actually went to see that production was because I've been so bored by what's going on in the regular producing houses for months and months and months, and people put on these new operas, and they're just kind of the same old thing. And I thought, okay, well, this is different. And I'd heard of the librettist— so I thought, okay, maybe this will be interesting. And I was completely blown away by this opera, by the production, and I was I was so excited. I thought, wow, if everybody goes to see this, all the people from the you know regular producing opera companies, maybe somebody will get an idea that this is actually the sort of thing that can happen in the opera house, and it doesn't have to be a retread of some 19th century novel that people do because they think it's safe and people will recognize the name.
0: And that takes us to our next topic, which is favorite musical trend of the year. And Heidi, you put that trend towards producing on your list.
1: Yes, I mean, that's actually sort of more of a hopeful um, idea about a trend than it is anything, you know, terribly real. But I spent a lot of time in the last month, particularly after I saw Dog Days, going to see um, a lot of small productions in smaller companies and in developmental companies and trying to see if there was any kind of um, interaction between these developmental companies and the producing companies and to see if some of the things that are coming out of this which are sometimes by younger, you know, edgier composers were actually making their way into the main producing companies. And you know, I think that a lot of people were very excited by Dog Days and would and would like to bring it. There's I did go to Edmonton to see a piece, another sort of apocalyptic piece about atomic energy, a very strange piece called Shelter by a woman named Juliet Palmer that was done at the Edmonton Opera that had been developed at the Tapestry Opera Company, which is a developmental opera company in Toronto. And they brought that lock, stock, and barrel out to Edmonton and put it on in a small space. So I think that the major producing companies are starting to look at these places as being a a possible source of interesting material for them. I know that the Fort Worth Opera Company is looking into these areas to see if they can actually bring in pieces that have been developed and workshopped and thought about and perhaps Designed for smaller spaces that don't actually have to be for a full orchestra and a you know two thousand seat house, and they can bring a newer sort of edgier sensibility to their audiences in a smaller space.
2: Steve, or, I think there's no yeah. question that uh, that some of the most exciting stuff in opera that's going on is going on in smaller spaces, and some of the most innovative thinking. I mean, even the Opera Company of Philadelphia used to be a very a more conservative house, and they're expanding their chamber program and doing newer works, and that's a really exciting development to see. Although I would add that as Heidi said, opera has been very what Victorian novel can we set now? What movie can we set now? And that that's actually a big regression that I think there used to be a lot more of the experimental spirit 15, 20 years ago. It would be great if we could see a trend toward reanimating or connecting the spirit of the producing companies with some of this experimental stuff that's
0: happening. Bells! I hear bells! (laughs) (laughs) Steve and Anne, you both had the same favorite trend, which you called
3: entrepreneurship (laughs) among classical musicians. Steve, could you explain that? Well, I'm really thinking about something that sort of comes very nicely out of what Heidi was just talking about, which is that people confronted with a sort of stodginess or an intractability in major companies are just putting on the shows themselves or doing the kind of programming that they feel ought to exist. I think about um, Ice, the International Contemporary Ensemble, whose founder Claire Chase won a MacArthur this year and and richly deserved, they're they're ten years old, and ten years ago they were playing complete afternoons of barrio sequenzas in galleries because nobody said not to, but they've <laughs> yeah. they've sort of gone from there to become a, a really intrinsic part of New York's uh, musical ecosphere, so to speak. I mean, they're they're. Certainly ensconced at the mostly Mozart Festival Mm -hmm. now. You know, Jane Moss has made great use of them at Lincoln Center. They're playing with the big stars, but they also haven't lost that sort of uh, entrepreneurial gumption and they're still, I mean, This is a little bit of a dated reference, but last night they threw their 10th anniversary party at a bowling alley and had little rogue performances while people were uh, throwing the balls. So it's just kind of, it's a refreshing attitude. And I find that it's catching. You know, their ensembles are popping up everywhere and putting on interesting shows and interesting spaces and um, interesting spaces are appearing to accommodate. None of this is new, but it does seem to be really concentrated. And it also, one thing that I, that I would add is that institutions like Lincoln Center, who we just mentioned, like Carnegie Hall, which seems to have a loose affiliation with Le Poisson Rouge on Bleecker Street now, the institutions are paying attention and sort of beginning to cherry pick the best of what's out there among the independent sphere.
2: Well, I, I concur with a lot of what Steve said. I would throw in that this is not a New York phenomenon. Ice is not even a New York phenomenon. Absolutely. That, uh, you can see it in Washington. It's, you can see it in Chicago, the idea that you have a flexible ensemble of musicians able to play different kinds of music. And, um, you know, when I say entrepreneurship, I was thinking very much of what Steve said and also the fact that a conventional musical career holds less uh, promise for young musicians and less appeal. People are growing up polymathic, um, polystylistic, loving different kinds of music, and going into a career where you just play Beethoven and Mozart over and over again, as wonderful as that is, I'm not slamming Beethoven and Mozart, but it doesn't have the same appeal. And there are not the same kinds of jobs. If you look at what's going on in orchestras today, it's become acknowledged in the field that this kind of thinking is important. And you have quite large institutions
0: looking at ways of making themselves more entrepreneurial. All right. So from the favorite musical trend of the year, let's move on to your biggest disappointment. And what's interesting, I found, is that everybody put, in some way or another, opera on this list. Heidi?
1: Well, I guess I have to say it was the Met Ring, um, and I'm sure I'll have a lot of company in that particular one. The Met Ring took uh, took a lot of hits, and for good reason, because it was just a great, big, elaborate backdrop of a set for a not very stimulating concept. Um, And Lepage didn't really direct his singers. The principal Brunhilde was not very interesting. And it was just a really enormously disappointing waste of resources to just have an enormous machine and nothing really going on except for an occasional pretty picture.
0: Other comments on this? I
2: would say that the Metropolitan Opera in general, although I feel like I'm always taking pot shots at it, I mean, it still is the biggest enterprise we have in America, but they seem to have a really difficult time figuring out how to make a production work, and the kind of formula that oh, we're going to bring in new directors from outside of opera and put theater in their hands. For one thing, it's not new; that's been going on in opera since the days of Rudolf Bing, various forms. And for another thing, it's not working very well. There've been a lot of really lackluster productions, and you go and you get all geared up, and maybe this one's going to be good, and they've had a hard time delivering. I did not see the Ballo and Mascara, the most recent new production, which got mixed reception, but was interesting and in that I think a lot of people were at least intrigued by what David Alden, formerly somebody everybody loved to hate, did because he actually is a director who knows about opera. And funnily enough, the more you know about a field, the better able you are to work in it.
0: It does work that way. Steve or Heidi, did either of you see The Balo?
1: I did see The Balo. I I didn't particularly care for it. I thought that it was once again trying to be Slightly transgressive, but not probably not transgressive enough. Um, And that seems to be kind of the the way that those productions work. They sort of put a little toehold into the water of doing something a little different, like, you know, trying to make the elixir of love be about the Risorgimento. I mean, I'm sorry, if you're going to do it, you just have to do it the whole way and say, okay, this isn't a sweet, bubbly, fun opera. It's a dark opera about the Risorgimento. And just like, Go the whole way. But, you know, they didn't do it. And um, I think they're really afraid of intimidating their very conservative audience by going too far. Well, also, you can't necessarily because the
2: opera doesn't bear it out. The problem with some of the concepts that are applied to operas, and I'm a great defender of innovation and opera direction oh. and being weird and wacky, but a lot of times you think up this great idea, and it can be a very interesting idea, but because the opera is not actually about that, there's only so far you can go with the
0: idea, and, I and see, therefore it's left hanging. <laughs> I have to say, Steve is nodding a lot. You can't nod in audio. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I know, no, no. I'm just
3: I'm nodding along because I, I agree with Anne in everything that she said, and I agree with how even though I did not see the ballot because I had exactly the same response to the elixir. And, you know, the only reason that I didn't pick on the ring is because you had asked for the biggest musical disappointment. And I wasn't in general musically disappointed with the ring. I liked Levine's bits better than Luisi's bits. But, you know, musically, I wasn't bummed out by the ring. What really sort of perturbed me is that you basically still have to go out of town, e- even if it's just crossing the river to New Jersey for Montclair, you have to go out of town to hear what's really happening and what's really interesting in the in the operatic sphere, period.
1: Well, if you want to go on, is we Bam can, out of town? <laughs> if, if, <we> can,
3: yes. <laughs>
1: yes, that too. But, I mean, we can go on for the New York City Opera as well, you know, if you want oh. to talk about, you know, like big- Musical
0: disappointment. Well, I think that's that's taking like, <laughs> us into our next topic, which is the yeah. worst development yeah. of the last year. So Heidi, okay. go ahead. Okay. Well,
1: if you want to do that, what's happened to the New York City Opera is I think one of the saddest developments of the past several years, and it has it. It's a disaster with many parents, um, and uh, they've been rehearsed many times. But at the moment, all the productions last year were terrible. They were looked cheap. They were poorly cast. They were poorly performed. Some of the, the actual choices were really suspect, like the Rufus Wainwright Primadonna, which I thought was a, a cynical and um, really terrible choice. And um, it was it, just everything about it was bad. And now they've lost their orchestra library to the flood. They are selling off their sets and their costumes. You know, maybe there are a couple of things that are coming up for this season that, you know, might conceivably be a little bit more interesting, but if they're still produced on the cheap... The way everything was last year, I can't see that this company has anything very interesting happening for it in the future.
0: Does everybody agree with that? Because there were
3: critics who liked the Cozy or the the Telemann. I wanted to see the Cozy, but there weren't enough performances to accommodate. I mean, that kind of – that really uh, upset me. The one critical success that they stood to have in the season, clearly, because it was precedented by their Don Giovanni, which is which was very good in my opinion at least – they only gave maybe six co-sees, and I just I couldn't get there.
2: Well, and of course, they don't have a home house anymore, so their entire definition as a producing company has changed because they're kind of itinerant around the city now, which puts them in the same position as a lot of other smaller companies like the Gotham Chamber Opera, which generates a lot more excitement, certainly on a regular basis, at least among audiences.
0: and and Steve, for your worst development of the year, you both cited what's happening with American orchestras. Steve? It's
2: a little alarming that Steve and I are dovetailing quite so much. <laughs> we didn't talk beforehand. Oh,
3: but but, but we always did that, and That's why the town's not big enough for both of us.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, and I'm going to I, I want to let Anne take the, the run on this one because I've actually had a change of heart just in the last day or so. I mean, I, I do absolutely believe that the crisis in American orchestras is fundamental, but I, I, I found something else closer to home a, a little bit more hurtful in the end. Okay, Anne, talk about... Well,
2: my, my sense about orchestras is, while it is sort of tragic and deplorable that there have been so many lockouts, strikes, um, seasons disrupted. The Minnesota Orchestra, one of the really exciting orchestras in the country, is still not playing. St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. But the really annoying part is that all of this was foreseeable. The management seems to be acting as if, oh my goodness, all of a sudden we're having these financial crises. Well, the financial crisis, as we all know, began in 2008. It began earlier than that. There have been problems for years. And there's been a sense of pushing off the inevitable. It's been kind of mentioned in the press every time a new contract is signed that puts the difficult moment off for another four years. Well, all of those difficult moments have now come home to roost. And Orchestra managements are trying to cut 50% out of the budget, and it may be that you have to do that and you have to slash salaries. But the fact that this wasn't better prepared for or thought out is a real indictment of the way that orchestras do business. This is not the way to run a company with budgets of more than a million dollars. It's it's That's kind true. of scandalous, and people should be taken to task far more than they are being taken to task.
0: Okay, so, Steve, now we're all waiting to hear what was even worse than.
3: (laughs) Oh, well, I, I, I hope I live up to expectations. I just the more I think about it, the more my low light of the year had to be the fact that the local entrepreneurial record label and fledgling concert producer New Amsterdam was so thoroughly devastated by Hurricane Sandy in October. This is a composers collective and record label that got together in 2007 and was going nowhere but up, blazing new trails for musical innovation, for presenting uh, innovation. They were inspiring people in other cities. They had a really, really effective business model of 80% of all profits from CD sales went directly to the artists. I mean, it it was something that was creating a big bubble in the industry and they had just moved into a new 3,000 square foot headquarters in Red Hook in May. Brooklyn, Red Hook, Brooklyn which they were going to they were using it for administrative functions but also rehearsal space and they were putting on performances there and lots of storage and then Hurricane Sandy came in and caught everybody unprepared. They lost Pretty close to everything. All of their tax records, tons of instruments. About sixty to seventy percent of their uh, of their CD stocks. Toxic mold is going to be a problem. Uh, ruined drywall is a problem. It's just going to be a very very long road for them to get back up to speed. And what makes it especially painful is that I've I've actually been doing a little bit more homework over the last few days after going to Chicago to see a very successful benefit concert for New Amsterdam on Sunday, and um. What's really hurtful is that they were actually... On the verge of expanding, they were starting new partnerships to, to tour all over the world and take their influence international. They were actually beginning to build partnerships with orchestras in America to bring some of their musical influence and some of their DIY expertise to those ensembles, to those institutions. So all I can do is just sort of uh, hope the best for their recovery because they were making a tremendous impact in this business and still stand to do so.
0: Okay. Let's try and end this on a a more positive note by talking about your favorite artists or ensembles of the year. And, Heidi, you had kind of a surprising choice.
1: Well, I was very excited. Uh, Just a couple of nights ago, I went to hear the Juilliard historical performance students they call it Juilliard 415, um, and it takes many different forms. But this particular one was an orchestra of 32 players led by Robert Mealy, who has just taken over this year as the director of the Juilliard Historical Performance uh, Program. And they played this absolutely blazing concert of excerpts from two Ramo Ballets, uh, Castre, Pollux, and uh, Dardanus, that Robert Mealy had put together. And they had some singers from the um, from the vocal arts department that came in and sang some of the arias. But this was just the, one of the most exciting concerts I've heard in a long time. And I was so thrilled because I love this music. I love this period. And you just don't get a big orchestra, a big orchestra of American players playing this in this really Stylistically correct and distinctive way. I mean, there's the you know the Trinity the Trinity Orchestra is like that, also led by Robert Mealy. But the fact that the Juilliard this Juilliard Band of um, historical instrument players could pull this thing off was just amazing. And I got I got all excited, and I thought, wow, now maybe we can have a real early opera center in New York, and we just won't have to wait till Bill Christie shows up with <sighs> Lézard <laughs> Florey's song, yeah, like once every two years.
3: And it's not that old a program, is it?
1: No, it's just a couple of years. It's, um, it's endowed, and uh, there's a lot of money there, and they're bringing in a lot of people. They do a ton of concerts. And they're really working well with the instrumentalists. The only thing is that they haven't brought the singers in yet because the vocal arts program is really... You know, they do some work with the singers, they do some operas, but I don't think that they get the level of stylistic coaching um, in the vocal arts department that the instrumentalists are getting because the vocalists are not really part of the HP program.
3: And I understand also, um, I'm I'm forgetting the name of the ensemble that played over the last weekend, but already students are graduating from this Juilliard program and forming independent early music groups that are playing around town now and being entrepreneurial and putting on their own concerts. So they're, again, a, a wellspring of new energy to uh, to sort of invade New York. Okay. Anne, your choice.
2: Well, I'm going to be retro and say John <laughs> Cage. <laughs> but, uh, the, I'm, I'm not a big fan of artist centennials, or rather, in classical music, they kind of ram down our throat, these anniversaries, 250, 200, whatever. But it was John Cage's centennial this year. And certainly in Washington, but I would say around the world with all of the festivals and activities and concerts that happened, it really allowed a new perspective on Cage. Discussion about Cage tends to focus on his impact intellectually and his ideas and
0: his thinking. And, and his four really... minutes and 33 seconds. And four minutes and his <laughs> silences.
2: And uh, it was really exciting to get to have a chance to hear a lot of the music together and really think about him as a composer because he really was a composer and he was kind of a thorny and formidable composer. He was not this airy-fairy, oh, let me throw the chips where they may and do something random and aleatoric, which is, I think, how a lot of people think of him. But it was a centennial or an anniversary that for once really for me, was significant and made a big difference.
3: And Steve? Well, I picked somebody who uh, kind of took me by surprise. I was initially thinking about people like Claire Chase of the uh, International Contemporary Ensemble, who got her MacArthur and is richly deserving. But I started thinking about what were the pieces and performances and productions that were really impactful this year. And I come back to David T. Little's Dog Days. And as I mentioned, his Soldier Song is coming up in January as part of a new operatic festival called Prototype, which is all about new music, and I thought about things like Love Fail, which Heidi mentioned and which I failed to see, and um, you know Missy Mazzoli's song from The Uproar, and a very, very innovative staged concert by the Brooklyn Philharmonic called Brooklyn Village. And what they all had in common was a producer, a woman named Beth Morrison, who is kind of enabling a lot of really exciting work that's going on right now. You know, Beth Morrison Productions is, is somehow involved in a lot of these things, in staged concerts, in grassroots opera. She's doing it in a lot of different places. And I just think that she has been a real bolt of vitality and innovation that, that has been much needed and is having a, a great impact. Thank
0: you all very much for joining us. Thank you. you Thanks for having having us. This has been Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the music business. Today's guests were Washington Post, music critic Anne Majette, Heidi Wilson of The Wall Street Journal, and Steve Smith from The New York Times and Time Out New York. Brian Wise is our producer and George Wellington was the engineer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year.